Hello and welcome to the All Plane Podcast, here with the people that are redefining the future of commercial aviation. And as usual, before I introduce today's guest, let me remind you that you can find all the previous episodes of this podcast, as well as many other aviation stories, on the All Plane website. That's allplane.tv. A-L-L-P-L-A-N-E dot TV. Today we are going to touch upon a topic that is essential to any discussion about aircraft electrification and that is the state of battery science and what can we realistically expect in this field in the coming years. Our guest today is Venkat Viswanathan, one of the leading experts when it comes to batteries for the aviation industry. Venkat is an associate professor at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where he leads an interdisciplinary research group working on technologies with the potential to accelerate the transition to sustainable transportation and aviation. Venkat holds a PhD from Stanford University and is also an advisor at several companies in this space, such as QuantumScape and Ionix. And previously, he had also been a technical advisor at Zunum Aerospace. He's also the co-founder of Kement, a startup that helps decarbonize industrial processes in the cement industry. In the last couple of months, Venkat has co-authored a couple of papers that have been published in major journals, Nature and Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, in which he outlines the results of his work in the field of batteries for aircraft and the several possible courses of action that are open to the industry. But above all, Venkat is a great communicator and he has a great ability to break down complex scientific concepts and explain battery chemistry to a wider non-scientific audience. So without further ado, let's welcome Venkat to the podcast to get the latest expert insights about batteries for aviation. Hello Venkat, how are you? Good, how are you Mia? Very well. Where are you joining us from today? I'm joining uh, from uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Very cool. So um, first of all, let me introduce you to the audience. You are an associate professor at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and your area of specialty is battery science. You've been working very intensively in solving one of the major issues of um, aviation electrification, which is actually how can we get better batteries? How can we get batteries that provide more um, energy density so that we can electrify aviation further? So uh, we're going to cover this ground now. But uh, first of all, I, I will ask you to, yeah, to provide us a bit more of a background of, uh, about your professional and academic background. And then we, we can maybe move on to talk about a couple of very interesting papers that you published recently in, in two very prestigious journals about uh, science of batteries and how this science of batteries can evolve and what we need to do in the, in the, in the near future to, to move forward in this direction. Definitely. Uh, so I think the, the journey to electrification uh, is actually won by one largely by accident, right? So I was a graduate student at, uh, uh, at Stanford University, and I was seeing the transition to electrification of transportation. So uh, that was when I started actually thinking about, about batteries, largely by accident. And I then, then I think I have spent now, uh, since then, probably over 15 years uh, in this field. And I was razor focused on trying to understand batteries for electric vehicles. And in this context, I think one, uh, one pivotal point in my mental thinking uh, was a road trip I did in the summer of 2017 from, uh, from Pittsburgh to, to Palo Alto with my wife. And uh, we drove in a, 
in my 60 kilowatt hour uh, electric vehicle. Uh, so it had about 200-ish mile range. And uh, of course, you know, I wouldn't say it was, a, it was a cakewalk, but certainly it was not as difficult as I had originally imagined to be able to do a cross-country trip in um, in an electric vehicle. And in that trip, I, I, I realized that I'm inventing all these advanced batteries and where are they going to go, right? Uh, if not for next generation of electric vehicles. Then two interesting things happened that summer. Uh, one was I got invited to attend a, a workshop that NASA organized that brought together battery people and aviation people. Um, it was the first time I met uh, a number of folks that uh, subsequently have played a great role in my understanding of aviation. Um, you know, one in particular, Brian German, who had uh, just then co-authored the Uber Elevate white paper, uh, setting the stage for urban air mobility. Uh, and then folks that had thought about aviation uh, electrification for larger aircrafts. So on the road trip back, I spoke uh, on the phone uh, with Ashish Kumar, uh, then co-founder uh, and CEO of Zunomero. Uh, and, and that was sort of the, that summer was the pivotal moment in my career where uh, it was clear that I had to sort of transition to aviation as uh, that was a frontier where I could make better batteries, which will have, you know, sort of infinite need uh, because, you know, whatever uh, high specific energy battery I could invent, there was a market to address. And so I think that's sort of the large context. And then a number of sort of key things happened subsequently. Once I sort of said, I'm going to work on this, uh, one significant thing was uh, I was then signed on as a consultant at Pratt & Whitney. And I reported to Alan Epstein, who then became a co-author in one of these papers that uh, we're going to talk about today. And uh, it, was a, it was a great period where, you know, over a period of about 12 months, you know, I taught him all about advanced batteries and he taught me all about, uh, about aviation. So it was a, it was a good, good deal for both of us. Um, and then in the summer of 2018, uh, the Airbus Vahana team came to us and then uh, asked us to think about batteries for eVTOL. And, and that really, I think, started the journey for us uh, in the eVTOL space. And then I think a number of people there, two people that uh, were our project managers, Jeff Bauer, who then went on to be chief engineer at Archer, uh, and then Evan Frank, uh, who leads propulsion at Katie Hawk, um, and now uh, and, you know, with that, you know, we uh, got our hands dirty uh, in the aviation space. And so I think that culminated our understanding. And I think that led to these two papers in, over the last three months or so, which I think has really put both the battery industry and the aviation industry uh, on alert in terms of sort of what are the capabilities that might be possible, right? I think that's the sort of key goal of this work is to understand where we are today but also to project where we might be from the lens of someone that really understands the electrochemistry of what might be possible. Uh, I think in aviation, uh, I think it is you know, common trade studies to be able to project what happens in the future. And those typically run at sort of you know, uh, single digit percent, right? Couple percent, three percent per year. Uh, but the, the advantage in, in batteries is we're just starting, right? I think we're just starting in this era of, battery powered mobility battery powered propulsion so there is a long way to go uh, and i would say that you know it's you know in, in many ways in terms of battery electrification uh, it's like you know back to the right brothers era right so we're just at the beginning yeah actually one of the examples with which you illustrate your paper 
on the nature journal is actually from the 19th century, end of the 19th century, one of the first airships powered by an electric battery-powered engine, which is a detail I, I, I was not aware of. Really, really interesting. Um, and then, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, at the end of last year, you published these two papers. I'm going to post the links, of course, to the, in the show notes, but just let me mention them. One, it's on, on nature. Uh, it's one of the of the most prestigious science journals. And the title is The Challenges and Opportunities of Battery Power Flight. It was published on the 6th of, no, uh, sorry, it was published on the uh, 26th of uh, January 2022, although it was accepted in, uh, it was received in November, sorry, uh, in yeah. October. Sorry, I, I just yeah, mistook yeah. the dates, but, but yeah, basically it was published at the end of January. And then earlier on, on that one is in November, you publish another paper on the uh, proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America, and the title is The Promise of Energy-Efficient Battery-Powered Urban Aircraft. I'm going to post links to both papers, but I'm going to ask you to, to go over the main findings. Basically, one of the things you say, I'm not a scientist, so I'm, I'm not going to get too much into the details, but you say that one of the things that we need for battery power, electric aviation to, to go forward is actually we need a radical change in the sort of approach because the technologies that have been powering batteries, sorry, the batteries that have been powering electric vehicles on, on the ground, electric cars, are not sufficient for, for, the, for the demands of electric aviation, which is something that we, we could somehow suspect. We, we are aware of their limitations. Just to put some numbers, a Tesla Model 3 has an energy density uh, the battery has an energy density of 260 watt hour per kilogram, yeah? Um, and you said that with new approaches to battery technology, it's possible to get by 2030 to get to 600, uh, but eventually we would need to get much farther than that, over 1,000 to 2,000 watt hour per kilogram. So, yeah, can you tell us basically what's the essence of these papers and what were your findings and, and what do you think, what's the, you know, what are the limitations with the current technology and what do you think are the most promising paths to move on to the next stage? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I think maybe before I sort of jump into the details, I'll just set sort of the context of how we got to this uh, so that the listeners get a sense for the lens at which we have approached this problem. So I co-authored this paper with, with six other co-authors. And three of them came from, uh, four of them came from, uh, from aviation, and then three battery people. Uh, and it was really trying to, uh, and of course, as I mentioned earlier, right, Alan Epstein uh, led the aerospace section, uh, and then I led all this battery discussion. And the, the core approach to thinking about this problem was to take a uniquely sort of aerospace-like thinking, which is an entire system-based approach to ask the question of what might be feasible, and also, what are the sort of unique challenges that aerospace has that is different from automotive? So I think the sort of larger message that you already got to was that the arc of progress in automotive batteries is not going to meet the aviation requirements. I think that's, I think, uh, a point that you know, many of your previous guests have made. And I think one that I think is, is, is quite clear. The question is, uh, sorry, may I, may I interrupt you here one second? Um, so the, this 260 watt hour per kilogram now that we have with uh, Tesla now, how long did it take us to get to this point? Yeah, so that's a great question. So the, the original start of the earliest invention of the lithium-ion battery, which happened in 1991, uh, the, you know, the cells there were about uh, you know, 150 watt hours per kilogram. And then from there, it's taken us almost you know, close to two and a half decades 
to be able to get to, to where we are today uh, with cells in the range of 260 to approaching 300 watt hours per, per kilogram. Um, I will add one important caveat, which is that the, the relevant number to use when you want to integrate that into uh, a device such as an automobile or uh, an aircraft is the packaging. So it's the pack level specific energy. So the cell has reached 260 to uh, 300, but the pack is still in the range of about 180 to, uh, to about 200 watt hours per kilogram. So that 600 number that you mentioned um, is what we think the pack will get to. We think cells will get to about 800 to, to 1000. Um, so there's, a, there's what's called a packing burden from an amazing cell to what you can use for a variety of reasons, uh, extra packaging that you need to be able to use in a in a aviation propulsion system. Sorry, can, can you can you please um, clarify very briefly for the audience that uh, might not be familiar with the, with the concept of cell and, and pack? Uh, yeah. What do they mean yeah, in, in plain terms? Yeah, let me let me let me unpack that. So the cell level specific energy is basically a, a cell that you might be able to buy, for example, right? So people have probably seen cylindrical cells, the lithium ion cylindrical cells that they may buy. Uh, the cell level specific energy is the energy contained inside that cell divided by the weight of that cell. So you put that in a, in a weighing uh, machine and then you get the weight and then you get the energy content of the cell and the energy divided by the weight is the cell level specific energy. Now, in any relevant propulsion system that you would use these batteries, you would have many thousands of these cells. These cells need to be connected, right? So they need to be um, uh, connected electrically. Uh, they also need to be shielded from each other. So you need to package them between each other so that if one cell fails, that cell doesn't, the failure doesn't propagate to other cells. And then the final thing is, even though it has 100% of the energy, you don't use 100% of the energy, right? You use only maybe 90% of the energy, which is you charge from, uh, you charge from 5% all the way, uh, discharge all the way to 5% and then charge all the way to 95%. So you lose another 10% of the, uh, of the battery. So pack level specific energy is the, the automotive battery pack or the aviation battery pack, the energy contained inside that full pack divided by the weight of the pack, right? So as you might expect, right, uh, that is lower than what you would get from the cell because you now have to add the weight of additional components that are not providing you energy, right? So the packaging, the electrical wires, obviously the window that you are limiting it to and so on. Uh, so in, for listeners, in figure three of that paper, uh, we unpack all of these different factors. And the important point we make, which is, I think, very interesting, is that you get a fresh cell, right? You only can use 45% of that fresh cell's energy in terms of what you could use for flight, right? And in fact, even there, you eventually end up having to put some for reserve, right? So which means that, uh, you know, you end up having a much lower fraction of the total available energy inside the cell for actual flight, right? And I think this is something that I think is not fully appreciated. Uh, when you mention a fresh cell, you mean a cell that hasn't undergone any, uh, let's say, depletion on, on the capabilities, I guess. Exactly. So that now, the typical thing that uh, you have a computer or you have a telephone and over time, the battery is not as performing that when you bought it the first time, right? Because there's a depletion yes. there. Yeah, so there's, that's, a, that's an additional aspect. Uh, it's in addition to sort of, uh, you know, the stuff that we talked about, right, which is that as the battery ages, then the performance of the battery, both in terms of its ability to deliver energy, as well as the ability to deliver power, 
decreases. And so I think that's another factor that you need to take into account in order to decide what the available energy and available power is. Okay. Sorry, I interrupted you earlier. Just to get an idea of the, the pace at which this battery science has been advancing over the last two decades. So what, what are the perspectives now? I mean, you say that a new, new paradigm is needed to move faster. Um, so is this due to the materials? Is this due to the way that it are, the batteries are produced? Is this due to new revolutionary approaches to technology? Tell us a bit more about how you see this thing evolving. Yeah, so I think the, the, the pace of progress is a great way to think about it, right? So uh, if you sort of took a macro view, right, uh, you know, we're progressing at about sort of 4 to 5% a year over the last uh, 20, 25 years. But if you actually look at the, if you look at the micro trend, which is if you look at the progress over the last five years, uh, it's pretty incredible. Uh, if you look at what has happened with one particular technology, lithium metal, uh, where what you do is you change the anode that's used today's batteries, which is usually graphite, and then maybe a little bit of silicon. You remove the graphite, and then you directly use lithium uh, in its metallic form as the anode. And it turns out that if you do that, uh, you can now reach specific energies in the range of 400 to 500 watt hour per kilogram. This is not a new idea. This has actually been around uh, from the 1970s. We just didn't have the tools to be able to control this, right? So this was one of the hardest problems in battery science. We call it the holy grail uh, in, in battery science. And over the last five to six years, there's been incredible effort in making that happen. And today we have credible demonstrations. And in fact, you had uh, one of those great entrepreneurs, Richard Wang, on your Indeed, show. From Kuberk, uh, uh, which is now, uh, is now a, a part of uh, Northvolt, which is one of the largest battery uh, makers in Europe, well, in the world, actually. And they, they just opened this new gigafactory in the north of Sweden. They acquired Kuberk, which is an American startup working precisely on this uh, lithium metal technology. And, and Kuberk is going to be, let's say, the, the sort of like the test bank for aviation oriented technologies of Northvolt. Yeah, that's batteries for other applications as well. Yeah, it's good you mentioned it. Lithium ion gets most of the press, but there, there are other technologies out there undergoing development. Exactly. And so, uh, and, and of course, I have been part of lithium metal um, in, in uh, other capacity and I've been involved with, uh, with QuantumScape, which is also commercializing this for automotive applications. And so you ask the question, uh, okay, so we've solved the problem, the holy grail on the anode side, can we solve the holy grail on the cathode side, right? So uh, you can either change the anode or change the cathode. And I think with lithium metal, the end is done, right? So you, you are not gonna do anything better than lithium metal on the anode side. So the next is to do something on the cathode side. And uh, so figure five in that paper sets the context for this. Um, and so the easiest way you can think about it, uh, you probably heard these kinds of terms, NMC, NCA, LFP, all kinds of terms to describe batteries. Uh, and really the core thing that you want to take away is every one of those things will have an element of metal, a transition metal. NMC has nickel, manganese, cobalt. NCA has nickel, cobalt, aluminum. LFP has lithium, iron, phosphate, so iron. The key is for every one of those technologies, for every metal that you have, every single metal you have, you can store one lithium. If you have one iron, you can store one lithium. If you have one nickel, you can store one lithium. And, and this has been the, the cornerstone of innovation in batteries, which, is, which goes by the term insertion or intercalation, right? That's the core idea. Now, the paradigm that we put forward in the paper is to move beyond that one-to-one -one ratio and store more than one lithium 
per active center, whatever it is. Right? Uh, and ideally, that active center is not a metal. The problem with metals is they come, if you remember uh, your uh, high school chemistry, right? they come in the lower part of the periodic table. The second thing <laughs> go in the lower part of the periodic table, they're heavy, right? So yeah, I'm, it's very rusty, my high school chemistry. <laughs> in fact, in fact, the rust itself, right, is the core element of modern lithium ion battery because it's the rust, the iron, yeah. uh, iron ore that yeah, we end up refined, here. <laughs> refined to make uh, lithium ion phosphate. So the core idea is how do we store more than one lithium per active center? That's the core question that we went after. Uh, and we put out a number of possible options. And this goes by the larger family called conversion instead of insertion. And in the, in the conversion family of electrodes, the one shot on gold that we clearly spell out is what's called CFX, carbon, fluorine, and X here is the amount of fluorine you have. And so the, the beauty here is that you can now store, you now have done away with all of the transition metals. So there's no metal. So it's very light elements, carbon and fluorine. And you can now potentially store a, a lot of lithium uh, in the system. Um, and in fact, uh, you might ask the question, well, you know, why is there any hope that this could get there? You can actually go out and buy a lithium CFX cell. So one that has a lithium metal anode, right, that we have talked about, and then CFX that is 800 watt hours per kilogram today. So you can actually go and do this, except it can only be used once, right? It's a, it's a primary battery. It's not a rechargeable battery that can be used for uh, any mobility application, right? So this is like the, the single use rocket was the reusable rocket, right? Obviously the cost of the single use battery would be very high, but I think there's good reason to believe that we can make it rechargeable and we can make it achieve all of the other requirements that are needed for aviation. But are these, these batteries, these technologies, um... You say they are available, but are they available commercially? So yeah, they're available there's, commercially. So I, there's, there's, there are companies doing them, and for which type of applications? Is there a market for this? So there's always a market for high energy density single-use batteries for military, defense, and other, uh, other niche applications. So uh, there are actually a number of companies that uh, specialize in, um, in this lithium CFX battery. Uh, Eagle Picture is one of them, for example, uh, and uh, you know they have been working on this technology for many years. So you can actually buy these batteries commercially. Uh, they're also uh, sometimes used for space applications as well, right? So where the other metrics are not so critical, such as charge, uh, you know, re rechargeability, right? You want you're okay with using it once and 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 you're happy with it. Um, so there's a number of sort of applications in that realm uh, that uh, have use for these kind of these kind of batteries. Mm -hmm. And in environmental terms, is there any counterindication? I mean, all these chemicals, do they have any, any secondary effects on the environment or any other things that we don't want? <laughs> yeah, I think, that, I, think, um, you know, I think the modern lithium-ion revolution right, has caused a strain on the metal supply chain, right? So certainly with nickel and um, cobalt, uh, you know, the demand on nickel and cobalt has led to uh, you know, supply chain constraints. And of course, the other thing to remember is that uh, typically when you make a kilowatt hour of a battery, you use up much more than a kilowatt hour of uh, energy to be able to make that battery. So which means that you have to use them uh, substantially over the lifetime of the battery to be able to recover back the energy cost uh, associated with that. I think with CFX in particular, uh, I think you know, some of the challenges will be on figuring out efficient ways to make the electrode. So 
making fluorinated materials is tricky uh, and, and, and will require some technological innovation. Uh, but I think, you know, uh, this is, none of these are showstoppers. None of these are things that we are insurmountable. Uh, we know the challenges that, that lie ahead. Uh, and I think there's a lot of interesting innovation on fluorination uh, that has come in the pharma space uh, where, uh, you know, people that are making interesting drug-like molecules want to make those same kinds of compounds. And so they have invented some interesting techniques. So there's, I think, an exciting cross-pollination of ideas between these two communities. Uh, that might be useful. But I think in the long term, I don't think there's any significant environmental roadblock to be able to make these materials and then build batteries out of them. So you see this as a sort of a step-by-step -step ladder where you would, now we have this uh, lithium ion, would then maybe uh, lithium metal be the next step? And then the, the, the step after that would be um, this fluorination technology that you mentioned? Yeah. So they would be like a, it would be like an evolutionary ladder, or or they could be maybe coexisting for different types of applications. How how do you see this going? Yeah, so I think I think it'll be a coexistence because I think the beauty about aviation is that there is a, a spectrum of needs. Um, I think much like automotive, but I think aviation even more so. I think with uh, with urban air mobility, and I think we'll get to some of that in the in the other paper. But urban air mobility, I think. Current lithium ion has an important role to play, current automotive grade lithium ion. Then, uh, of course, with longer range urban air mobility as well as regional air mobility, I think lithium metal will play an extraordinarily important role uh, in that segment. And then for um, aircrafts beyond that, where you, know, you want to uh, you know, fly lots of passengers, lots of distance, we will unlock newer and newer markets with higher energy density cells like the fluorinated electrodes that we just talked about. When you say lots of passengers over long distances, can you put some figure or realistic figure on, uh, on that? Because obviously it's not the same to fly, I don't know, 100 passengers on a relatively short flight with still a step up from, from the eVTOL or from, from the sort of very light aircraft we are seeing now. But uh, flying like intercontinental, that's a completely different, um, completely different game. Uh, what, what sort of... What sort of applications you have in mind here when you, when you say that, you, uh, that this technology is going gonna, is gonna to bring a lot more range, a lot more capacity? Yeah. So I think you know, one, one interesting way in which we close the paper, right, as you pointed out uh, at the beginning, right, we, we, we start the paper with the La France, right, which was the battery-powered dirigible that, that flew yeah, their um, ship, eight yeah. kilometers. Uh, yeah. with in 18, 1884, that was. Yeah, 1884, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. And, and in fact... In fact, I also uh, realized this as I was writing this paper. My co-author, Alan Epstein, brought this up. Um, and of course, in, in 1909, right, when the Wright brothers delivered the first airplane to the U.S. government, right, which was capable of carrying two people, 120 kilometers, right? Sorry, 1909. So that's about six years after they, what's considered to be the first, the very first power exactly. flight. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's about the capability of the, the Pipistrel aircraft, right? Uh, another, uh, another guest of yours. Uh, yeah, in indeed. <laughs> um, so, and then if you remember in the arc of history, like in 1920, there were fueled aircrafts that were carrying tens of passengers, about you know, 800 kilometers or so, right? I think with the kind of batteries that we're talking about here, I think we'll start to be able to do the 1920 mission again, you know, within this period. And then I think beyond that, will require a combination of innovations, right? So it, it can't be just from chemistry innovations. It has to be the integration of some chemistry innovations, 
with other innovations on battery packaging, right? Um, and we will get to we can get to some of those things. Uh, and I think you know those paired together will slowly start to move to larger and, and larger numbers, right? And I think the numbers that we put out uh, in that paper, and I think Figure Two shows the gap between the, the usable energy density uh, inside a turboprop and a turbofan versus batteries, right? And it's on a logarithmic scale, so which means that any gap, right, is is very very large, right? And and so you know the numbers that we need. Are, are beyond sort of the numbers that we have even identified options for with near term. I mean, I think that's, we've identified certainly options that eventually could get us to, you know, commuter aircraft and of course, larger aircraft uh, to fly, you know, larger range missions, right? It, you know, it's all in the order of 1800 to, you know, 2,500 watt hours per kilogram. So another factor of two from the kind of numbers factor of two or three from the kind of numbers that we are talking about here. But I think you'll slowly unlock these things uh, because just like what happened in electric vehicles, once you went electric, other things started to change, right? For example, right, when you, when you went electric, once you could redesign the vehicle, then car designers figured out other ways to make the cars more aerodynamic, right? For example, the Model S and the Model 3 have the lowest drag coefficient of vehicles in that category, including all internal combustion engine vehicles that were known, right? So I think once that happens, once the unlock happens with electric propulsion, I think there are lots of other synergies that needs to be exploited. Uh, and I think in the urban air mobility space, right, this is very clear with distributed electric propulsion, where, you know, instead of, you know, uh, instead of one, one or two large fans right now, or one, right now you have uh, many uh, distributed um, either uh, rotors or fans uh, that allow you sort of much greater efficiency. Uh, and so it, I think if we think about what might be feasible with just the chemistry, I think I'm fairly confident that we will be capable of flying that 1920 mission uh, again very soon. Mm -hmm. But let's say, for example, the, uh, the aircraft types that are now uh, carry the bulk of passengers like the Boeing 737, say 320s, do you yeah. think th this size of aircraft will be electrified in a, let's say, in a, in a, in a reasonable time frame? I, I think it will require the, the third generation of this, this innovation, right? In the, in the arc we, that we just talked about, yeah. lithium metal, and then fluorinated electrodes, and the third generation will start to unlock the 737, the A320s. I think, uh, you know, I think we, we need to sort of go in steps uh, yeah. because, because this, you know, there's substantial hurdles to be able to manage safely that scale of energy and be able to bring down the weight enough such that, you know, you can, you can address the needs of those kinds of aircraft. You touch on the, the safety issue. What about the, the safety of all these different technologies that are not lithium ion, like lithium metal and fluorination? Uh, what's a what's safety profile and what sort of uh, precautions are going to be needed? Yeah, so I think you know, aircrafts um, and the entire aerospace industry uh, is built uh, on the foundation of safety, as we as we point out in our, our paper. And lithium metal, certainly, the reason it was abandoned in the 1970s uh, and 80s actually was safety, right? So because what happens when you charge and recharge the battery is they form these so-called dendrites, um, the same kinds of beautiful snow dendrites that form uh, that you see in winter. Uh, the very same thing happens inside the battery. It actually forms for the exact same reason um, that you form um, from snow dendrites. But in a, inside a battery, it's a problem because once 
that dendrite grows from one side to another side, then there is an electrical connection inside the battery from one electrode to another electrode. That causes a short circuit because you only want the electrons to go through the outside, not through the inside. So the short then leads to uh, a thermal uh, event. Uh, and that leads to, of course, um, you know, fire as popularly called, right? So uh, that was one of the reasons why lithium metal was, uh, was abandoned in the 70s and 80s. And that's exactly the, the challenge that has been addressed now to be able to make them at the same safety level as lithium ion. This has been fixed. This, uh, this main issue has been fixed, right? So uh, the expectation is that the safety profile uh, of lithium metal cells uh, would be comparable to lithium ion cells. So we'll have the same kind of safety profile that we have with lithium ion cells. Now, even in lithium ion cells, the safety profile is not as good as it could be if we could do just one thing, which is to replace the flammable electrolyte, right? So the electrolyte that's there is like fuel, right? It's, it's an organic compound, right? Much like, uh, you know, much like um, jet fuel, kerosene or, or uh, gasoline. And if we can find ways to replace that or, or modify that, we can bring up the safety profile of current lithium ion batteries as well, right? And there's a lot of work going on, a lot of innovation going on there. Uh, so lithium metal is the expectation is that it would have similar safety profiles. Um, with these fluorinated electrodes, uh, I think it remains to be seen uh, because I don't think we know enough to be able to comment on the safety profile of this. But I think certainly if you have to get anything that has to meet aviation needs, it has to be safe. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned other advances like uh, robotic experimentation or machine learning driven new material science advances. Can you elaborate a bit more on this? Uh, and what's characterization? Because that's another term that appears in the paper yeah. um, that yeah. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure I fully understood. Yeah, absolutely. Let me unpack those three for you. Uh, sure. So maybe let's do the characterization first. So in order for us to be able to make these batteries rechargeable and reversible, the lithium atoms have to move from one side to another side and up and down, back and forth every single day. Right? That's what happens when you, when you connect, this to, um, connect this to a power outlet or when you use it. And so in order for us to be able to control what happens, we need to be able to watch what happens. Like we need to be able to really understand what is happening inside microscopically. And so what I mean by characterization is just like how we go and take a photo outside and be able to watch what happens. Or for example, we go to a wind tunnel and make measurements, right? In the same way here, we wanna be able to take measurements and watch what happens, right? Just like you would with a PIV for the velocity field or, or pressure field in, a, in an aviation context. We now want to be able to understand and watch what happens inside the battery. Right? And that's what's characterization. And so the two terms we use in our, our paper, in situ and in operando, like in operando is, you know, while, um, you know, while the battery is operating, we want to observe what happens, right? And I think the capabilities that have been enabled in, uh, in, in situ and in operando have enabled us to design better batteries faster than ever before, right? So if you know and if you can watch what's happening, it's easier to fix the problem, right? So the capabilities that are there today versus even like five years ago is incredible, right? I mean, there's been step change in characterization capability. The second one that, that you talked about. So we have yeah. the, first, the first major trend that can um, help support this, this push forward in batteries characterization. Second one, uh, we have uh, the robotic uh, testing, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. 
and and maybe I'll quickly just talk about the robotic experimentation. We've been yeah. two robots, Otto and Cleo, that without any human intervention can go look for an electrolyte, mix, test them, decide what to do next, right? And all of this without any human intervention. And, and I think what this allows us to do is search over the chemical space and bring down the amount of heuristics, right? Bring down the amount of trial and error, which has been the way in which the battery field has been moving. But how does it happen in, in practice? I mean, there, there's like a lab where you have a, a robot mixing, mixing chemicals exactly. or something like that? Exactly. So it's a microfluidic setup. You have a bunch of different uh, electrolyte compounds. You then mix them, send it, send it to a test chamber. So through a microfluidic setup, you, you send it and then test in an electrochemical device. So test in a battery that is sort of mimicking the true battery. And then you get the answer. The answer is processed live. And uh -huh. then uh, using that answer, there's a machine learning sort of model that decides what's the next compound to mix and test. Okay, so it's basically it's processing kind of feedback uh, on the go, uh, depending yeah, on exactly. the results he's getting. And I guess that makes it faster and more precise. That makes it faster, uh, it's more precise. And the beauty is you can adjust on the go. If you look at human experimentation, The way we would do it is we say, okay, I'm going to do these experiments today, right? And then I only focus on doing the experiment. I don't focus on analyzing the answer as the results are coming and deciding what to do next, right? So usually mm -hmm. I just do what I planned for the day, right? And that could be that I basically, in the second experiment, I knew that everything I'm doing today is actually not useful, but mm -hmm. I'm not thinking, right? Because I'm actually just focused on doing. So the beauty with a robotic setup is then it takes the headache away from us for doing the experiment so that we can analyze and then say, okay, oh, this tells us that this is not the right direction to go. Instead, it's this direction. And so that allows us to move to another direction. Mm -hmm. And that takes us to the third leg is the machine learning, machine learning research, machine learning based research on, on new materials. Yeah. And here, uh, actually, you know, I'm involved with a company called Aionics where I'm chief scientist, which is commercializing these solutions to companies. And the core goal of uh, both Aionics and this sort of vision is to be able to shrink the time taken to commercialize innovation, right? And, and you know, if you ask uh, Richard from Kuberg or others that have commercialized uh, these battery innovations, right? Um, the number of experiments they have done to get to their secret sauce or the secret recipe is off the order of uh, somewhere between 100,000 experiments to about millions of experiments, wow. right? Right. That's a lot of, a lot yeah. of experiments, right? So we, we clearly have to bring that down, right? And so the vision with machine learning is before you even test, you already have a very good answer of whether it's going to be good or not. And with that, you can basically shrink that both number of experiments and time down. Right? The, the other thing is the amount of money invested, right? So they all have invested of the order of hundreds of millions of dollars to be able to get to that secret recipe. Right? But, so, but, but sorry, is this uh, because this is done, is this because it's processing the data from, from real life physical experiments or because it's modeling and it's, it's just doing it virtually, doing, let's say, like theoretical, uh, it, <laughs> theoretical experiments? It's, it's both, right? So it's the combination that allows this to work. Uh, it's running both modeling, theoretical um, sort of experiments, uh, as you described it, and real experiments. So it's extracting maximum value out of the real experiments, and then combining that with what we can do with theoretical experiments. And of course, the new uh, innovations in machine learning, 
that allows to build a map between the identity of the substance to its performance, right? So before we didn't have this kind of a fidelity in terms of mapping the identity of the material, for example, the identity of the, the kind of separator being used to its function in a solid state battery, right? So uh, what you had to do was to take that material, make the material, build a cell, test and so on. But now we are at the point where we can go from the identity to the performance quite easily. Um, and of course, pairing all of that together, it's the package that I think is enabling rapid innovation in this machine learning guided discovery. It is both using simulation and theoretical experiments in combination with real experiments, right? I think it's very, very key that real experiments are a part of this loop because otherwise the theoretical experiments have its deficiency in how well it can simulate the reality. Uh, and so it, it cannot live by itself. It has to be used in conjunction with the real experiments that allows us to sort of optimize over these design spaces. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I guess it, it helps you narrow down a, a lot the real, the real life experiments. Uh, and I guess that's also why you are confident that we're going to come up soon with all these new materials for, for yeah, batteries. I, I, uh, for I've seen it happen. I've yeah, seen okay. it happen personally, <laughs> right? So, uh, so I think the, the pace of progress and the pace of innovation in the battery industry uh, is going to be unprecedented in the coming decade. Um, the other axis that I think is, is, is not mentioned is the excitement students feel to work on batteries, right? Mm -hmm. So when I started as a professor, uh, the excitement for batteries, right? I would have to sort of go and say, no, batteries is a really important problem. Now it's the opposite, right? Students are coming and saying, can you teach us more battery classes, right? So my, my battery class is always oversubscribed, uh, right? And so the excitement in young, you know, innovative people in, on working on these important problems, uh, I think that is, you know, you cannot substitute that. And I think that's mm -hmm. why, in addition to all of the other three trends that we talked about, right, the, the, just the passion for sustainability that is there today, I think that is a key factor that will allow us to innovate much faster. Mm -hmm. I see. So batteries are hot. Well, they, they shouldn't be hot when they're on a plane, right? But they are hot yeah. in, in the academic world. Yeah. Um, okay, so... That when it comes to, to the, the chemistry, but um, then you also work on the field of uh, advanced air mobility and, and urban air mobility. You said that you are more, let's say, more, more optimistic about the prospects of, of the current lithium-ion technology for, for urban air mobility. Did I get it right? Yeah, so I think uh, in that Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences article, uh, we set out to answer two questions. The first question was whether today's batteries or today or near-term batteries can supply the needs of urban air mobility, right? So I think that was the first question. And the second question, which I think is an important question that every student that works in this topic asks me is, are these just sort of replacing, uh, are these the sort of gas guzzling uh, version in the air, right? So are these the sort of, you know, the hummers in the air, so to speak, right? How energy efficient are they, right? So the, the paper really addressed those two questions. And so what we analyzed there was we took a number of very number of aircraft designs, um, some you know lift plus cruise design, um, tilt rotor design, tilt duct design, and then we asked the question of whether today's lithium ion cells can supply two main things: can can it supply the specific energy, so how much energy it has per weight, as well as specific power. Right? And the specific power is the really important factor that is unique to UAM and AAM uh, that makes it different from automotive applications. Right? You uh, never Sorry, yeah. uh, just parenthesis here. Uh, can you um, elaborate a bit more about the difference between 
energy and power uh, yeah. because i'm 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 assuming this is a distinction that it's for for many people is is not so clear <laughs> right yeah so how much energy is there uh, so if you look at sort of your uh, your phone right or or your car uh, how much uh, energy is there is the is what's shown in the indicator right i have 80% right so that's that says that i have 80% of the full energy that was there in the cell that is available power is how quickly can you use that energy right and so uh, for example you know if you look at a car right they give you a spec for how fast you can accelerate right so that's an indicator of power right so how quickly you can get the energy is power and the actual energy contained is your is your indicator can we say in in plain terms is the difference between having like let's say the stock and the flow yep, how, exactly. how things are stored and how things are are how used to do. yeah okay yeah, yeah exactly yeah, uh, so yeah so if you if you have a tank uh, so in the in that in that same analogy if you have a tank right how much how what how heavy uh, you know how much liquid is there in the tank tells you the energy how quickly you take water out of the tank uh, tells you how much power and so uh, for urban air mobility the second one how quickly you can get that water out of the tank actually is as important as how much water you have in the tank to begin with is it because of the demands of the hovering and the and the vertical takeoff that many of these uh, devices rely on exactly so it actually uh, is on exactly that but uh, it turns out that the main challenge is actually the landing segment, not the takeoff segment. Oh, because, really? because, so you actually end up requiring almost the same power when you land because you have to sort of push the air to be able to land. And the problem, and this I'm sure all of your listeners would have, would have felt when they are trying to use their smartphone, when suddenly your battery is at 10% and you try to play that YouTube video, right? Uh, it suddenly starts to freeze and, and, uh, and turn off, right? The challenge is you need to deliver that high power at low state of charge. So when your when your battery pack has now gotten to let's say thirty percent uh, in an EV toll, uh, and so actually the landing power is the failure mode currently for batteries that are used in EV toll applications. Mm -hmm. So basically, when the battery when there's less battery, uh, sorry, when there's less energy in the battery let's say it's it's more um it's more challenging to to have to, to have this peak power. to have this peak power uh application exactly so okay. the reason for that is actually quite intuitive so uh, i'll try and give you a, a simple way to think about it so as you discharge the as you discharge the the battery right so in the same way that you discharge uh, uh, water from a tank right when you now open uh, when you open and try to get water from that right you now have a lower pressure head to be able to push this out so in the same analogy, uh, in that same water analogy, right? In a, in a battery, there's less voltage to push. And so as a result, you're not capable of delivering the same power. Okay, understood. So getting back again to the lithium ion capabilities, what can be achieved with the current technology or do we really do, do all these projects to, to have like uh, urban air mobility in the, in, the near, in the near future? Because some of them are aiming for 2025 to 2026 uh, launch dates. Do we need some significant advances in lithium-ion technology to happen in this very short period of time? Or with the current technology, we are already on, on good track to achieve that? So I think the, the, the punchline of that paper, uh, I, think, I think much to our own sort of uh, surprise, was that I think a number of these designs are within the reach of current or very near-term lithium-ion technology. Right? So I think that was the the key insight from that particular work um, and, and that shows that both 
the maturity of the industry, as you pointed out, in terms of you know how they have um, planned their certification approaches in the mid-decade, as well as the cells that will be available to them by that point, right? So by 2025, I think they're you know the just the arc of lithium-ion will be able to you know get to high cycle life and get to the safety profile and get to the charging speeds needed for urban air mobility. Uh, and so I think the the closing remark there in that paper was that this technology uh, and of course flying cars, right, uh, is the epitome of technological progress, right? That it may be here sooner than most people think because of the fact that, you know, there's exceptional progress and interest in, uh, in urban air mobility, as well as the rapid progress in lithium ion batteries that has already gotten it to a point where these designs are approaching feasibility already today, right? And I think you know, will only get more and more feasible in the coming years. So I think by the mid-decade, you know, a number of these uh, urban air mobility makers have announced plans to certify and, and run operations. And I'm very optimistic that, at least on the battery side, right, one that I know very well, uh, we will have the batteries ready for them uh, to be able to fly. Uh, it's the question of whether all of the other pieces, maybe autonomy and, and, uh, and certification and regulation, other challenges, uh, noise profile, you know, lots of other aspects that needs to be addressed for this to be real. But I think from an energy store standpoint, urban air mobility is within striking distance. Um, and I think what we learned there will teach us what to do in the other step changes that we talked about earlier. To, to be clear, though, uh, when we talk about urban mobility, we are talking about really local, uh, really local uh, movements. Like, I think you mentioned somewhere in your paper, something like less than 10 minute flight, something like that. Yeah, so th these would be intra-city flights. Uh, I, I don't think it needs to be quite 10 minutes. Uh, it can be off, off that order, off tens of minutes. Okay. Uh, not not hours, right? I think that's yeah. The, so that's just to clarify that we are not talking here about 150 miles or something like that. We are talking about moving inside a a very well defined urban environment. Yeah. So the 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 intent of that paper was to address the intra city market, right? Yeah. Not inter city. Or, or so airport we, airport to city, for example, uh, which is one of the applications yeah, or, that yeah. Exactly. Airport to city, for example, right? Like the canonical, uh, you know, one of the canonical use cases, right, is you know, Manhattan to JFK airport, right? Or in LA, right? Somewhere yeah. from downtown LA to one of the LA airports. Or I think in, you know, Melbourne is the other uh, other city being considered, right? So from, you know, downtown Melbourne to, to the Melbourne airport, right? I think uh, those are some exciting markets. I think ones that uh, today are being addressed uh, by helicopters or other kinds of uh, vehicles. The beauty with urban air mobility and of course electric is that you get better operational economics such that it can become more ubiquitous. And the hope is that, you know, with better noise profile, that you can now run many more of these kinds of flights than what you could do with helicopters today, right? So, yeah, so the boundary here is those kinds of flights that would be in heavy, heavily congested urban environments where the difference in time uh, is significant, right? So for traveling that same distance in, the air, right, in three dimensions versus on the road, two dimensions is significant. Those are the ones that we will see uh, really, a, a, you know, really a penetration in those spaces. Mm -hmm. Exciting times. 
what else are you working on at the moment? You had a very uh, productive uh, last year in terms of papers. Are you working on any other paper that we should be waiting for in the near future? Yeah, we are actually. So the, the paper that uh, we are, uh, the work that uh, we are uh, involved with uh, is, you know, I talked a lot about chemistry, but now I'm going to talk about something very different, which is to estimate how much energy and power is left inside the battery. You know, this, this is where it's very different from fuel. Fuel is very easy to decide how much energy is there. You just weigh how much fuel you have, right? Super easy. Unfortunately, with the battery, it's a closed system, which means that you can't, the only thing you can do is you can observe three things. You can observe the voltage, the current, and the temperature of the cell. And with that, you have to guess how it feels, yeah. right? You, you uh, don't see the electrons. <laughs> yeah, you don't see the electrons, right? So, yeah. so, so with, by observing, uh, you have to sort of guess you know, whether it's in a comfortable shape, whether it's happy to do the landing mission and so on. Uh, and so this is a, a project that was started with the Airbus A-Cubed Bahana team, where what we have built is a very fast and accurate way to estimate whether your battery pack is going to be capable of doing the landing mission, right? And of course, landing and, and doing the reserve, aborted reserve, uh, in, aborted landing uh, reserve mission in case you need to do that. And the key there is to be able to understand how the battery ages. And, and we, call this, we call this the battery avionics system, right? So the core vision here is that, you know, we put the battery system in the same level playing field as every other avionics system that you have today, such that we, for a pilot, we give them all of the sort of instructive uh, information about the state of the battery, that the, here's the amount of energy left, here's the amount of power left, here's the kind of landing mission it can do. And the most important thing is to be able to do that as the battery ages, right? This is the main challenging thing because as the battery ages, then this becomes more challenging because uh, as an older battery cannot deliver the same amount of power uh, and we actually don't know when it cannot deliver the same amount of power, right? Uh, so these are sort of the main aspects to think about. But what, what about, for example, in the iPhone? And when I, I got the iPhone, there's a function that tells you what's like the battery health, and that's telling you some data about your battery. I mean, is it not that accurate then, or it's just so a it is estimate? accurate. It, it is accurate, but aviation is different in the following way, uh, especially urban air mobility, which is the context in which we're looking at this, is the state of health monitoring is very easy for energy. Just like it's easy mm -hmm. to see the tank okay. right, and say how yeah. much energy is left, it's easy to guess the energy. Uh -huh. The difficulty is power. How okay. quickly to, can I take out? Okay, to put it in context. To, to put it in to, context, right? to put it uh -huh. in the aviation context, right? And the uses this, you want to do. Yeah, yeah exactly. To, the, to and, and the aviation use is actually very, very tricky, right? So yeah. uh, like you can go to your iPhone and ask the question, at 20%, mm -hmm. can I run YouTube? And okay, you know, can I parallel process YouTube and then do email and then do uh -huh. uh, you know, uh, and then play something else, right? So that's the kind of load we are putting for an eVTOL, which is I think from a battery physics standpoint, right? It's really exciting for us mm -hmm. because uh, it's it's stressing the battery uh, in a way that causes all kinds of failure modes. So we have to understand all of that, right? And you know where and, and I think that you know the, the title of our paper uh, you know sets uh, you know sets the the context here, right? Which is that. For every challenge, there is an opportunity, right? And, mm -hmm. and we love challenges, right? So uh, eVTOL in that sense is an amazing challenge for the battery designer, both from a cell engineer's perspective, but also from someone that tries to diagnose 
the energy and the power content of the battery. Yeah, indeed. Well, I've, I think we, we covered lots of ground and I really appreciate your capacity to, um, to communicate all these very complex concepts in a, in a way that I think everyone can, can easily understand. Because I, I have to admit, I'm, I'm not expert in, in this topic. I, as, I, I, as I admitted earlier, I, my chemistry notions from, <laughs> from high school are, are not up, very up to date. So it's been very, very, um, it's, been, it's, been a, it's been great for, for learning a bit better. What, what are the challenges in this very promising field of battery technology? People that want to learn more about your work uh, and follow the, the, the work you guys do, where should they go and what type of resources would you direct them to? Of course, I would put links to the, to the papers we were mentioning all the time, but uh, where else uh, could they go? Yeah, so I think uh, you know, uh, people can uh, look up our, our group website uh, and I'll share the link to the group website to you. I am very, very active on Twitter. Uh, so people follow me at, uh, at Benkvis, E-N-K-V-I-S. Communication, as you said, right, is very, very important. Uh, and especially in these kinds of advanced technologies, the more we communicate to the public, that's how we can reduce the barrier to adoption. So that's why I spend an enormous amount of my time trying to help communicate these ideas around um, you know, these kinds of new technologies and bringing down the fear level to the adoption of, of these uh, these new technologies. So uh, please do follow me on on Twitter. Um, and uh, I do. I, I do already. <laughs> you do already. But, that, right? I, but I, I recommend everyone else to do it as well. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and I think I'll close with this parting remark, right? I think um, the exciting thing for the future of aviation is interdisciplinary, right? And I think this has been part of aviation for decades and actually probably the full first century of aviation has been interdisciplinary. So in the article, we close by this comment that the way the next second century of aviation can progress rapidly is for the two communities to come together, right? The aerospace community and the electrochemical sciences community, right? That thinks a lot about uh, energy storage and, and energy uh, conversion devices. The, the fusion of those two is really, I think, where magic happens. And, and I hope that, you know, through this, uh, uh, you know, your listeners, Get excited to think a little bit more about uh, about batteries, uh, mm -hmm. and um, and I think uh, the future is extraordinarily bright, uh, and I'm really excited for the the second century of aviation. I think that's an excellent concluding remark. Um, we can we can leave it here for now, but uh, I'm sure there are going to be a lot more novelties uh, coming from the battery field. So uh, more than welcome to come in the future and and, and discuss it again and and learn what's behind the scenes of all this progress we are seeing in, in, the, in the field of battery technology. Well, thank you very much, Venkat. And thank all the, you so much. Looking forward to, to reading the new papers when they come out. So speak thank soon. You. Thank you. Bye-bye. Before you go, and if you like this podcast, a quick reminder that it would be absolutely great if you could please give it a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you are using or recommend it to a friend or whomever might be interested. Thank you very much and see you soon. Yeah.